0: welcome 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 how's everybody doing hope you are doing well my name is andrew coon focus compounding sitting next to jeff gannon jeff how's it going today uh it's going well andrew how's it going with you it's going great we hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, be sure to check out all the content we put out on the internet. Go to focuscompound.com to get access to write-ups, investment write-ups. Follow me on Twitter, at Focus Compound. I have been tweeting a lot lately. I love Twitter. (laughs) Um, And hit that subscribe button on uh, the podcast side of things. That helps spread the word. In every single episode when we pull up financials, we use Mm QuickFS. Every now and then I'll post something on Twitter, uh, like a screenshot of financials, and people are like, "Where did you pull this from?" And I'm like, "Quick FS, tell them you came from Focus Compounding if you sign up." So in today's podcast, we are going to continue on with our capital allocation series. Jacob McDonough was the author and gave us the AOK to talk about it on the podcast. So make sure you go follow him on Twitter and buy his book on Amazon. Capital allocation. All of his information is down in the description uh, down below. Uh, but we are in the period now. Of 1966 to 1972, and we're going to be talking about Diversified Retailing Company, Blue Chip Stamps, and Sees Candies today. And oh, this man. is the part in you know the snowball where I really it's it starts to get pretty interesting because it's really when M- a Buffett and Munger join forces and actually go into business together, as opposed right. to just talking about stocks and stuff like that on uh, the phone every single day.
1: Right. And these companies will be eventually be combined in different ways into Berkshire Hathaway, but they start out separately.
0: Mm, correct. Yeah. So diversified retailing was formed in 1966 when Buffett, Charlie Munger and Sandy Gosman teamed up to buy a department store in Baltimore mm-hmm. uh, named Hofschild Cohn. It's interesting that they went into the department store after Buffett was having issues with Berkshire Hathaway. I know those are two kind of different businesses, but you know, kind of having to deal sure. with textiles same, and stuff like issue, that. Sure, same issue,
1: which is um, they're a societal shift, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, this is different and this is a de- sort of, I guess you could say demand side change more. Um, these department stores were big because people had much lower ownership of cars. So they would come on uh, streetcars, right? So the department stores were normally in the middle of these cities. And cities of all sorts of sizes, including cities of the size of Baltimore, so a smaller city, would have a couple of these, and they'd all be centrally located, right? Like right across the street from each other. And they would get all the traffic. And then as things went out to the suburbs and everything, stuff changed. Already by this time, there's some things are changing. So this was probably a better business 10 years or so before Berkshire bought in. Um, so a little different than the textiles that way. This was a more recent shift. Um, and they would have already seen that, you know, this wasn't a popular area that way for, you know, the industry didn't have good prospects.
0: Mm -hmm. It's funny, I was listening to Monish Pabrai talk recently to a college and he was talking about, you know, sifting through ideas and stuff like that. And a mental model that he uses for investing is... Anything that has to deal with retail, he just doesn't even look. It just goes in his "I don't care" bile. Um And he talked about a lot of that. You know, I mean, if Buffett has been successful in it, he's just really not interested yeah, in Buffett, anything retail. Buffett's had a lot of trouble in retail.
1: I'd say his overall record in retail is very, very poor.
0: Why is that? Do you think it's just a tough industry? Um, so much competition. It's kind of like restaurants that way.
1: I think it. I think you know, value investors may want to be careful. In retail because it is um, possible that when you're attracted to a company it's facing certain problems and when the business is attractive it's likely to be priced pretty high in the stock market uh, so it can it can draw you in but I think the same thing's true often with financial services. It hasn't been financial services haven't been a problem for Buffett. He's done very well in it. But I think other value investors have the same problem, which is they're attracted to specifically those banks and insurers they shouldn't be attracted to. Likewise with uh, retail stuff. So he had problems with Tesco. He's had problems with others. I think it's similar to technology that way. There can be a lot of change. Um, there's very little. I mean, there aren't a lot of retail successes that last for a very long time. And retail always fails really, really badly. Uh, You don't really have cases where it survives. Um, So, you know, the biggest retailers from an earlier period are completely wiped out. Eventually, you know, they completely wipe out their shareholders' money. Uh, So it is very different from some of the other industries we talked about. That does not happen in... Advertising media, whatever people who own stock in those things would have gotten payments from other uh, entities when they merged into them, and whatever you know, it doesn't end this way. Same with brands, food brands, and things; they don't go away one hundred percent. But here we have that. The most famous example being uh, Sears with Eddie Lampert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so diversified was not a good uh, investment for Berkshire, though they did use it for other things, and they had a very cheap price.
0: Yeah, so it says, Diversified acquired Hosschild Cone for $12 million, with half of the funding coming from equity and the other half coming from debt. In April 1967, Diversified paid $6 million to acquire associated cotton shops, later named Associated Retail Stores. The Associated Retail acquisition was fully funded by debt. Combined, the acquisitions were one-third funded with equity and two-thirds debt. Uh, and that was another thing, too. This was Buffett's... I mean, he rarely like ever took out any debt for anything. And they talked a little bit about that in the snowball. How this was one of those first times with um, uh, with this acquisition. And when they went to the bank and asked for the loan, or were talking to the loan officer, they're like twelve million for little Hoshell Cone. Mm-hmm. And uh, the funny thing is, is they, you know, typical Buffett and Munger, they still thought they were getting uh, a bank still made the loan. Yeah, and they, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So I mean, it was backed by the working capital of the business and the land and stuff like that. Um, the They got a pretty good price on it. They had a lot of success with the cotton shops. In fact, the return on equity on that was excellent for a long time. But again, not a successful investment as you might think because the moment that they lost the manager there, uh, it it completely went sideways and they had to sell it off at a really bad price. Mm -hmm. So, um they had trouble doing that it would be like as if you lost sam walton and then walmart wasn't a success at all Mm -hmm. and that's pretty typical of retail things too that they might be more execution dependent
0: you know he wrote about it in the 1989 letter to berkshire hathaway shareholders buffett writes shortly after purchasing berkshire i acquired a baltimore department store Hoschild cone buying through a company called diversified retailing that later merged with berkshire I bought at a substantial discount from book value. The people were first class, and the deal included some extras, unrecorded real estate values, and a significant LIFO inventory cushion. How could I miss? So three years later, I was lucky to sell the business for about what I had paid. After ending our corporate marriage to Hochschild Cohn, I had memories like those of the husband in the country song, My Wife Ran Away With My Best Friend, and I still miss him a lot. Mm -hmm. Very funny. Very funny. And he wrote about it in his BPL letter to partners, 1969. Associated retailing stores has a net worth of about 7.5 million. It is an excellent business with a strong financial position, good operating margins, and a record of increasing sales and earnings in recent years.
1: Yeah, Associated retail stores is an unusual business. They operate under different names, very small format stores in uh, urban locations. And this is a time in which there was a significant um, deterioration in terms of urban life and retail specifically for small retail things like this so it would have been hard so competition was probably decreasing Mm -hmm. during this time period a major thing here was keeping costs very low but also controlling shrink. so theft would have been a major problem and they really uh that's something that you can cut down on internally right so very efficiently operated yeah
0: they talked about that in the snowball how anytime somebody sketchy would walk in one of the general managers would blow a whistle and basically everybody would watch them Mm -hmm. (laughs) to make sure that they weren't going to steal.
1: Yeah, shrink is a major factor for retail operations depending on what they sell. And they were selling clothes in uh, cities. Mm -hmm.
0: So about three years later, diversified retailing decided to sell Hoshell Cone for 12 million. So basically broke even on it over, you know, three years or whatever, I guess down a little bit. But from an opportunity cost perspective, I would say they lost money.
1: Uh, yeah, I do so they bought it in, what year did
0: they buy it? 1966.
1: Yeah, maybe. That's possible. I mean, they may not have done worse than people did in the stock market. They might mm-hmm. have done a little better than that. But, uh, from opportunity cost of buying other things with they probably, yeah. Uh, they actually started up, uh, insurance things that they put inside diversified retail, so it continued to exist.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we can move on to blue chip stamps. Uh, this is a very interesting business that they bought. And again, it's the second... You know, or second or third, because he did have a couple other insurance companies where float really uh, came into the picture, right? Yes, this is another
1: declining business. In fact, of all the businesses they bought, this one is the fastest declining. Uh, blue Ship declining much more so than. Um either uh, diversified retail that we just talked about or um, Berkshire. Mm
0: -hmm. Blue Chip Stamps was based in Los Angeles, California and operated a type of rewards program. Blue Chip would sell stamps to retailers who would then issue stamps to its customers. Later, customers would redeem these stamps for products at the store. Blue Chip would be on the hook for the cost of the products whenever the stamps were redeemed. Uh, The timing difference of getting paid first and incurring expenses later created float similar to the insurance business. He wrote about it in it was written in Blue Chip Stamps' 1969 annual report in fiscal year 1969. 66 million, I'm sorry, 66 billion, 297 million Blue Chip stamps were issued by 20,000 merchants. Seven million customers redeemed 57 billion, 877 million Blue Chip stamps for 15.7 million items of merchandise. Let's see, so we could go down to... Yeah, so
1: Blue Chip was um, sort of a local monopoly. They were very small compared to the leader, uh, which was um, green stamps. Um, And uh, only big in California, really. So this was, the trading stamp business was big in the United States, but it was dominated by other companies besides Blue Chip. And Blue Chip had a small advantage there. It had a complicated court case because there was an antitrust action against them when Berkshire got involved in buying into it. And that's why the stock was down a lot. They ended up having to give up a lot of their stock, uh, too, as part of a a consent decree to get out of the legal issue. And in fact, that's where Berkshire
0: got some of their shares from eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, And Buffett... And Munger, I mean, Munger also invested through his partnership mm-hmm. in this company. He says, initially invested in Blue Chip in 1965. Munger was on the board of directors in the late 1960s, and Buffett joined in the early 1970s. By 1976, Munger was the chairman of Blue Chip. We could go over uh, where they kept most uh, a lot of their cash. It was in you know uh, stocks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. State and municipal bonds, preferred and common stocks. When they are buying into it, yeah. mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you think that's what really appealed to them was the float generation and being able to take that capital and invest it elsewhere?
1: Yeah. And also they may not have known how quickly this uh, trading stand business would decline. And there was motivated, you know, selling that had nothing to do with the economics of the business because of the uh, consent decree. Yeah. I think all of those were factors. But yes, being able to control the float to invest in other things. I mean, they would use it eventually to buy seized candy
0: and and um,
1: what became Wesco basically, mm-hmm. yeah
0: when Buffett and Munger were being investigated by the SEC, mm-hmm. right, they were, it was a lot of like, well, how did you know, because it was like, that's when things, this is when things started to get like more complicated, right, so right. it's like, there's like Berkshire, and then there's a diversified retailing company, and then mm-hmm. Blue Chip, and Blue Chip by Seas, but they control, you know what I'm saying? So right. it started to become this huge like web of, well, how do you go into that? How do you know how to do this? And it was just like a huge issue for them or, um, A lot of stress i guess when they were being investigated
1: yeah because i think buffett observed some other people and what they did and liked what they did and copied that approach because it's an approach that works a lot and some other people have done it since where you use one underpriced stock that you own to buy shares another underpriced stock which creates a series of um those sorts of discounts uh and you don't drive out the price over time by doing that people don't notice what you're doing and you're able to acquire over a period of many years, which is what they did. I mean, it took them a long time to integrate these companies together. Buffett's record wouldn't be as good if they had just immediately thought, oh, let's merge with Blue Chip or something. They had to wait till they, you know, over time to slowly grow their positions in these companies. Mm -hmm.
0: So, C's Candies, this is one of the most famous early investments of Buffett because... It is the investment where, quote unquote, he paid up for a high quality company mm-hmm. and as opposed to, you know, this is Buffett 2.0 as opposed to Graham and Dodd, Buffett 1.0. And even paying up is, you know, by most people's standards, probably pretty cheap. Uh, but Blue Chip acquired 67% of C's candy in January 1972. The company increased its ownership of C's to 99% in March 1973. Blue Chip paid $35 per share, which valued C's at $35 million. Uh, So not... A crazy uh, small company, right? Even in, in 1972 dollars, I would say, right? Right. Um, the balance sheet of C's reported that the business had cash of 9.9 million with no debt. This means that Blue Chip paid 25.1 million net of cash acquired.
1: I'd say it's under 200 million market cap in today's dollars.
0: Got it. Yeah. Um. Well, do you remember what they originally offered to pay? I forget what it was. Right. It was like. 20 it was like 20 million or something along those lines correct didn't they make an offer first that sees basically they may
1: have sees had some uh cash which they're talking about there and i think that the difference in the original uh amount that they ended up paying and the um amount that they may have considered paying at first is a large part of is the difference in the cash that we're talking about so like um they we just said they valued the business at what 35 million mm-hmm. but they actually had excess cash so the underlying business isn't being valued that way yeah cash
0: of 10 million yeah so, so it's about 25 25 million. million yeah you could look at 1971 they did 2.2 million in net income so mm-hmm. you yeah, know what's yeah. that
1: so 10, 11 um, times. right uh but they would have had um the taxes would have been pretty high you know then mm-hmm. yeah So, you know, it's a fairly normal price to pay now for a stock or a business. However, at that time, given where prices of stocks were, there would have been lots of other options. So it it was a high price for for Buffett, I would say. Yeah.
0: And in typical Buffett fashion, it's not like they came on as CEO. Um, They just, you know, this was like the holding company structure and they bought the business and uh, he wasn't involved in operations or anything like that at all.
1: No, he was involved in pricing it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, He did talk about that with raising the prices. That was very important. The
1: the key to C's was, I mean, they tried to expand it, which they probably shouldn't have, but not expanding it, taking all the money out of the business and raising prices over time while not cheapening on the ingredients. So if you raise the prices all the time, then you can keep the ingredient quality really high, uh, not trying to get away from the seasonality of it. So that was another issue. Most owners of the business would try somehow to work out the seasonality. Um, if you're a public company, right? So, uh, embracing that seasonality and then raising the prices over time instead of trying to reduce costs. You can see there on the gross margin, right? The gross margin increases over 13 years. It goes up 10%, which is huge from
0: 44.6% to 54.4%.
1: Right. And that makes all the difference um they, in fact it doesn't increase the profit margin by nearly as much as what we were just talking about they raise profit margin from like four percent to eight percent but by getting the gross margin that high you're in a strong position for uh having a lot of growth in the future in terms of nominal sales without needing a lot of more sales per pound um that we we're talking about and in particular not cheapening the product right because mm-hmm. there's a lot of inflation during that period but keeping the quality of it high the quality of other candy companies decreased a lot more. I mean, you can see that if people have tasted candy from the competing ones. I don't even know that you would realize other companies that are competing with C's. Originally, C's was priced in line with like... When Buffett bought it, it would probably be priced in line with like Russell Stover and things like that. Now it isn't. And the ingredient quality between them is totally different. The distribution is totally different. But that's what you can see. One brand went really down uh, market and C's went up market.
0: I love how at the Nebraska Furniture Mart near where we live... Um, there's a C's Candies in there.
1: Yes, so C's Candies is in Nebraska-Frencher and they do a pretty good amount of sales mm-hmm. in there for their small format that they have. But yeah. mainly California thing, yeah, it hasn't expanded much in the rest of the country.
0: So the number of sales in 1972 for C's was 31.3 million and in 1984 it was 135 million, so a 13% kegger. Um uh, But the number of pounds of candy sold went from sixteen point nine million to twenty four point seven million in nineteen eighty four, which is a three percent Kager So you could tell that, you know, they benefited from raising prices. Yeah. The
1: most important thing is they raised prices nine to ten percent a year. They went from what, a dollar per pound to five forty nine per pound. Right. So that's the important thing is taking a brand and moving it, positioning it at a different price point, realizing that you could do that. So I think they looked at it and said, we could do that. We can see that we're much better than our competitors at the same price. And over time, we can raise it. Mm -hmm. And now it made it easier because there was inflation. If there hadn't been so much inflation, I don't think C's would have worked out nearly as well as an investment. Um, It's hard to raise prices that much in a world where there isn't a lot of inflation. A lot of inflation does make it easier to raise prices on things when you have that pricing power. So it doesn't really change your real pricing power. But if people are used to prices not changing at all, then it's a big deal. So if people are willing, let's say people would be willing to pay many times more for Netflix, a world in which there's a lot of inflation does make it easier for them to get their price higher, their real price adjusted for inflation higher over time because people are used to a lot of pricing changes. And at the time we're talking about 72 to 84, there's extreme inflation that prices are changing all the time so very easy to change your prices if they tried the same thing in you know 2002 to 2012 or whatever that they would have been difficult to do that Mm -hmm. um and so i think sees benefit from that in relative to other investments and it was obviously a great investment to have in a time of inflation too but berkshire pushed it another owner would never raise prices as much as buffett did That was kind of the key to the investment was to raise prices that aggressively.
0: He he always uses See's Candies as the example of how do you know if you actually have a good business or not, right? If you have to have, what does he say, the prayer session uh, before you're about to raise prices on whether you're going to be able to keep volume up, uh, you know, it could be an indication of a not so stellar business. Yeah, See's may be the best business Berkshire ever bought.
1: What do you think they do in revenue now? Have you heard figures on that? No, I haven't. Uh, I'm not sure what it is. I mean, it hasn't taken more capital.
0: They do a lot more sales online, obviously. Uh He wrote about it in the 1991 letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. And he always used, this is a great example for like return invested capital, return on uh, incremental invested Mm -hmm. capital. For an increase in profits to be evaluated properly, it must be compared with the incremental capital invested required to produce it. On this score, C's has been outstanding. The company now operates comfortably with only $25 million of net worth, which means that our beginning base of $7 million has had to be supplemented by only $18 million of reinvested earnings. Meanwhile, C's remaining pre-tax profits of $410 million were distributed to Blue Chip slash Berkshire during the 20 years for these companies to deploy after payment of taxes in whatever way made the most sense so like the return on invested capital and stuff
1: yeah i mean to think of another way it has uh, i guess like a 98% dividend payout ratio crazy. or something like that yeah. yeah while also growing a lot crazy in in yeah so we've talked about that before that's what you want with a business is free cash flow Yield plus growth here, the free cash flow yield and the earnings are basically the same. They paid it all out in dividends while also growing. That's what makes C's an attractive business that way. We've talked about like over the counter markets or something like that because it's an intangibles based business and because it has float, can be a business like that. You're not used to it with a business that's brick and
0: mortar like C's, but it is possible. You know, he just ship that capital up to the mothership and he's able to, to redeploy it. Right.
1: There there are other factors, too, that might not be obvious to people. Um, Seize is highly seasonal and it's selling a fresh product. So it's tying up extremely little capital in terms of working capital. It's also selling the product for cash from consumers which is much more attractive than if it was a candy company selling to grocery stores or something which would give them time to pay. So it's not creating receivables, which is a very big factor. If you want to look for a good business, one thing to look at is what business doesn't have any receivables. Uh, Like I said, also, I think C's is much more successful at Berkshire than it would have been anywhere else. Because any other owner would have, one, tried to expand it even more than Berkshire did. And Berkshire tried too hard. You know, it didn't work. Uh, Across the country, they would have tried to grow it. Two, they would have freaked out about the seasonality of it and having to report that quarterly. Because you're going to lose money three quarters out of the year and make all your money in one uh, quarter. And so, say that you own, you know... uh, say you own something that's uh, ski resorts or something you always try to buy like water parks you always the company will always try to do something where they don't make all their money in one quarter even though it doesn't matter mm-hmm. right so that factor and then also no one would have uh, increased prices as often as buffett did you know a few big price increases they might have done but he took it as an actual strategy to do that and those three things really made C's more successful I don't think another owner would have been as successful. It's you had such a business-minded owner owning a really good business. Most good businesses, like C's, wouldn't be as successful because they wouldn't push those advantages. They would diversify more, diversify as Lee yeah,
0: buy other pack or companies like other candy companies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and they stayed, stayed sticking to what they do best. Uh, so they continued to sell through their own stores. They accepted the seasonality of it. They didn't expand all around the country. Uh, they tr- expanded a little bit, but they're still very much in certain seasons and certain parts of the country. Um, and that's kind of an extreme thing that others would avoid, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, because you could have expanded across the country, gone into drug stores and, and grocery stores and things, brought made your product cheaper. Been you know, you could have done a lot of different things that might have seemed right at the time, but would have harmed the business long term. And Berkshire ran it to make a as much profit as possible
0: got it cool well i don't think everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today on the focus compounding podcast make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening to us Uh, check out jacob's book go to amazon type in capital allocation i'll also put a link in the description be sure to follow him on twitter as well and if you're not make sure you follow me as well i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast